0: Hello everyone, this is Greg Drevenstead, editor-in-chief at Rider Magazine, and your host for the Rider Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest today is Andy Goldfein. Andy is the founder of Aerostitch and the inventor of the Roadcrafter suit. Andy is also an advocate and organizer for the International Motorcycle and Scooter Ride to Work Day, which takes place on the third Monday in June. The 30th annual Ride to Work Day is coming up on June 21st.
1: Well, hello, Andy. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Well,
0: most people that listen to this podcast certainly know about AeroStitch. Uh, they know about the Roadcrafter suit. Um, you know, ba- basically, you know, the, the AeroStitch catalog is something that I've looked forward to receiving for years. Uh, I've been able to wear some Roadcrafter suits. Both of those things have been developed kind of a cult like following over the years. and um, but I don't know if everybody knows that when you invented the road crafter back in the early 80s, uh, textile apparel, which is really common now, was not common then. So, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit of the backstory on not only air stitch and road crafter, but um, you as a motorcyclist.
1: Well, you gave me a, a half a dozen questions to study on before you, we started this. Um, and the first one was, how long have you been riding? And I started riding when I was 15 and a half years old, or 15 on an illegal mini bike, which no license plate. Um, and I actually technically started riding when I started bicycling as a probably a third grader or second grader or something like that. I remember w- w- where I was and the exact moment when the, I first balanced a bicycle the night before the training wheels had come off. My mother and I had, had a long discussion about whether I was ready. There were no balance bikes at that point. Uh, so i it was a big deal when I first started pedaling and balancing. I can remember it. I can take you to the exact spot it happened. And ever since, I've just enjoyed the experience of riding, of balancing. I think it's magic, and I think it's medicine. I think it's just good for us. So I knew, and you I,
0: think, I know you're based in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, right on the Lake Superior up there. Uh, did, did you grow up in that area? Did you learn to ride in
1: Minnesota? I, I, I grew up in the center of Duluth in a fairly dense neighborhood. Duluth is on a pretty steep San Francisco-like hillside uh, with a very cold lake ne- right next to it and a big uh, commercial harbor. There's a lot of foggy days. And winters are long and dark. Um, but I've been a rider, and I, I connect riding with lots of other balance activities that people do the skiing, sailing, uh, skating, surfing, uh, dancing, um, much more, any, we're made to be sort of wigglers and balancers. And, and if you need, if you don't get a dose of that every day, uh, your, your life isn't as good. You don't feel as good. At least I don't.
0: Well, like anything else, you know, you use it or lose it. I mean, you know, motorcycling is a perishable skill. If you, especially if you've got uh, long winters, you know, you've got to probably kind of rea- reacquaint yourself with, with riding and just sort of getting the cobwebs out uh, every spring.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, and then and, and as you, as the older you get, the longer that spring re- reacquaintance period actually takes. It used to be just a few days when I was a kid that I was, you know, back in the groove. And now it's a few weeks of kind of wobbling a little bit more than I should. But then it comes. Once you ride regularly, it becomes second nature. All the little micro moves that you make to put the key in the bike and to lift the center side stand and to you know handle the controls or turn on and off the pedcock if your old bike has one of those, all that stuff becomes second nature. The same with uh, locking your helmet to the bike somewhere if you want to go into a grocery store or getting in and out of a road crafter suit becomes second nature when you do do it again and again and again by the time you've been riding a couple of weeks you don't even think about it it's just it becomes simpler than using a car even and the car makers have certainly spent 100 years trying to make cars really simple to use uh that's what ride to work day is partly all about is to get people into everyday uh use of a motorcycle if they choose to or if their circumstances will allow it um, that's coming up. It's this. It's Monday, June twenty-first. It's which is very soon. Ride to work day. Maybe talk about that a little later. Sure.
0: So uh, you learned to ride a bicycle, like many of us, then a, a mini bike, which you said was was not fully legal. I think that's probably common for a lot of people that learned as a as a teenager to ride a mini bike. So how did you get from there to basically inventing the Road suit and uh, sharing that with the world?
1: I started riding legally with a license plate on a Honda 90 at 16, a few days after taking the driver's test, just after my 16th birthday. And I rode to uh, high school and ever since. And at that time, Japanese bikes were a revolution in how much higher quality they were than the European-made and American-made bikes. So you could buy a Honda 90 for 325 or 350 dollars, and the thing would run, you know, 50,000, 40,000 miles without much attention. The, in in the, those old Honda 90s, the crank bearings were bigger than the diameter of the piston. <laughs> just about it was they they were very high quality machines, and the Japanese bikes still are one of the highest quality in general uh, bikes that you can get. So bikes were an everyday thing always for me. And, and when I was in my 20s, I kept hearing from adults, from responsible people, questions like, are you still riding that motorcycle? And the implication always was, you're going to grow out of this pretty soon. You're going to grow up and be like the rest of us and get a Chevrolet. And when I was about... I think about 28. Uh, I decided that I wasn't ever going to grow up out of this. That this was—I I liked the experience of the, of the kinesthesia of riding and the balancing so much that I just threw in the towel. And I, at that that time, I was a weekend trail bike rider doing AMA enduros and riding with buddies. And and the bike had a license plate, even though it was only marginally legal. And I decided I better just get legit, and I bought a, a BMW R100, a used, which, as I looked at street bikes, seemed to be one of the lighter, bigger, it was one of the longer suspension, lighter weight, big street bikes available at that time, so I figured I could still go on gravel roads and do what I was used to doing, compared to the, the, the Triumphs and Ducatis and and uh, all the Japanese bikes, they were light, and they had a pretty good suspension system. So then I was riding that to my job, commuting on a fully legal with turn signals and everything, BMW. And um, about that same time, the work side of the work-life balance really wasn't doing going so well for me, and I was not a happy guy doing what I was doing and uh didn't really like working with who i was working with and i decided i would try and start a business and at that time all of the industrial sewing and fabric mills and everything was involving our clothing was leaving america for asia and so all the garment factories all the textile mills all the people who made buttons and whatever they were all closing and going bankrupt and their equipment and was up for auction and, and i went to several garment factory auctions uh, and sort of learned what was going on. You could buy a commercial sewing machine, maybe that cost $3,500 for $50 or $150. And some of the other bidders were from Asia or represented people from Asia buying up all that. There were a million garment and textile workers in the United States when, just before I started the Stitch, And that's gone down to just you know a few tens of thousands from a million. There's not much of that industry left in this country. And there's been books written about how environmentally destructive the fast fashion businesses, where you go into a mall and you can buy a blouse or a pair of jeans and you wear it a few times, and then you can literally throw it away It's so cheap. Uh, so I wanted to make something. I was always good making things, in my imagination anyway. And uh, so I the, the machines that I ended up with had been from a factory here, which had made winter coats and snowmobile suits. And in industrial sewing, uh, the equipment is specialized. So if you want to make t-shirts, you need special t-shirt sewing machines. If you want to make jeans, jean sewing machines and the equipment I had, I had 16 sewing machines that were specifically for making winter clothing. And I started looking around for what could I make with this stuff. And I looked at and I knew I wanted to make something of my own. Not I didn't want to be a contractor for someone else's designs. I wanted to have my own brand. And I looked at fly fishing vests and they were all good. I looked at foul weather gear for offshore sailing, they were all good. Ski jackets, there was tons of good ski jackets. I looked at everything that I had remotely ever done and found there was all kinds of good stuff out there that I didn't think I could do any better than. But there wasn't really a solution for people who wanted to commute on a motorcycle. That w- y- y- At that time, there were very good leathers from Schott and Langlets and uh, Bates and a bunch of other the old leather. If you're a serious rider, you either had English waxed cotton suit or uh, a leather clothing that was and very expensive, heavy and hot. And there was almost nothing in between. Um, you know, there was cheap windbreakers with racing stripes on them that didn't sure. have anything. And you you wore jeans, which you knew would not help you in a, in a crash. So I thought maybe I could make something kind of like a snowmobile suit, a coverall, but with armor in it and make the fabric heavy enough so that you could slide down the road. And so I started experimenting with different fabrics. I built a hinge platform that bolted to the rear bumper of a pickup truck. We put some weight on it. Uh, we filled the sandbags with a powder that was heavy and white so that when they would shred through, uh, they would leave a streak on the pavement. And then we would go out to County Roads and drag these sandbags made of leather and made of Cordura and made of Kevlar, and all this stuff. We drag them down the roads and see what how, what lasted and what didn't. And we were having a pretty good time trying to figure out how to make this cover on Me and a couple of people who were working with me. Uh, And there's a lot of funny stories, a guy came out in fuzzy slippers and a bathrobe to his rural mailbox on this county road where we were dragging these bags, wanting to know what government we work for. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, we just packed up our stuff and left and said, thank you, we're sorry, we're putting white marks on your road, the rain will wash them away. And pretty soon I made this coverall and then ran into resistance from the motorcycling community especially people who uh, back in the day were the experts like you are today they were not open-minded most of them a few were uh, a fellow named stephen l thompson was he, uh, a very open-minded and uh, wrote about it in his editorial columns a fellow named mark lindemann who you know sure. uh, was a technical editor of a, the largest magazine at the time was cycle in circulation and he was the tech editor for cycle and he wrote about it and he got it he understood what its purpose was and my hope was to have enough guys or women who wanted to commute on a motorcycle to have an easy solution sort of an all-in-one like like you know james bond jumping out of the wetsuit in the early goldfinger movie to go do some sort of spy work or the tuxedo on <laughs> and it was that was the concept except that the Commuting was the was the real thing. If you lived farther than four or five miles from where you worked, you really couldn't use a bicycle. And I didn't want to drive a car. I, and a motorcycle to me combines the speed of a car and most of the health benefits of a bicycle without the aerobic piece. And I wanted something to hang in the garage next to a helmet, jump in every morning and get to work. And the cycle journalists, your predecessor, Mark Tuttle, and before him, a guy named Steve, Mike Stubblefield, right. a guy from Texas who worked at Ryder. Those uh, Mark was just starting out at Ryder. He was like the the shop guy who was washing bikes in the parking lot and getting them ready for photography. But he got it, and Stubblefield got it, uh, and the journalists who had to ride from this was the internet wasn't around. There was you had to ride to an office where there was a typewriter and all of the cycle magazines were made in los angeles somewhere almost all of them and all of the guys like you back in that time had to get up in the morning and put on their leathers and then ride across the la grid and then take off their leathers and then sit the typewriter and generate their copy and they loved this thing it was easy it was fast and we came we received a ton of ice i was I went to Los Angeles a couple of times to try and explain it. And it caught on with the journalists after about two years or three years. And at one point, all the journalists had them in all the magazines. There's an old copy of Motorcyclist that we framed and hung on the wall of our facility. It shows four guys on four different test bikes. It was like a 600cc sport bike comparison. And they're all wearing the same suit, AeroStitch. And of course... <laughs> the people who, you know, were coming along trying to sell other kinds of things for riders to wear—they and the, you know, companies did not like. BMW had a great line of of, of clothing, and they didn't want to see their bikes tested with air stitch at the time originally. But we we it became the uniform, sure. and it would, about the time you came into the industry, it was it was the uniform, and that's the story of how it started.
0: It's funny because I remember when I started at Ryder in 2008, and soon after that, um, Mark put me in touch with you and we got me measured up for a a road crafter. And he told me the story about, you know, back in the 80s, when you went around to the various publications in person and you had, you know, you had your samples of your suit and you basically had to give the pitch because you, as you mentioned, you you had some resistance. And so there was some convincing that had to happen, but once they- We're convinced, then nobody would give up their Aristotle suit. <laughs>
1: that's right, and they and they've lasted much longer. I still uh, hear from people who says I got a suit that used to be uh, Greg Greg's or, or you know somebody's suit, and it's twenty eight years old and it needs a piece of zipper repair or a Velcro or something. They last a super long time. They're really an investment, and that's what I was going for when we decided how to grade them for fit and size. We don't, we, we first of all didn't want to make them to order like custom leathers. Sure. We wanted them off the rack. Like you'd go into a men's clothing store if you were an attorney, say, or a medical doctor, or selling real estate or something. Back in those days, you'd go into a men's clothing store and you said, I need a suit for work. And they would sell you a 42 long and maybe they would say, Come back Wednesday and we'll make this one sleeve a little bit longer, let it in higher, take it out there. That was the business model I wanted. So we had a, Large inventory of stock sizes to sell off the rack. We still have quite a few. That's uh, still an important business, and um, so it wasn't custom tailored like sure. uh, racing leathers. Sure, uh, but it was always focused on commuting in my mind. And it, the, the the odd thing is, is that most motorcyclists want to ride for reasons of fun and coolness and fashion, and so the people who were buying them weren't magazine editors who had to get on a bike at 7 30 in the morning they were people who wanted to ride to yellowstone or alaska or south america on a for a two-week vacation so all these recreational riders were buying these coveralls not and still going to work in a chevy or a toyota and so the business didn't come out quite exactly what i was thinking it might but it's still here i'm still enjoying it so
0: well, so you've been making the road crafter suits and i know there's variations there's the original one piece there's a two-piece and then you've got different you've had um lighter weight versions and different fabric versions over the years but um right. the air Stitch catalog which uh is something that it has all of the it's like this curated set of of gadgets so like you can look at all of the road crafter options and different suits and, and apparel that you wear but you've also got um you know everything from boots and gloves and and base layers to um, camping uh, gear. So, how did how did the the Arisage catalog, which is which is its own sort of thing, how did that get started?
1: Well, it got started for two reasons. One, I wanted the business to be solvent and successful. And it w- it's very difficult to make much money selling clothing in America. That's sure. why it all did go to Asia. And Arisage has never been a gold mine type business uh, we're all we're solvent and we have but we still all the make money and we still sometimes have to struggle in the wrong part of the year to make the payroll and all that stuff but i wanted the second layer was that i really wanted to present using a motorcycle as a p as a as part of an ordinary person's world the sort of the world writ whole so you didn't sort of stop your life and be in my mind, this is me, not everybody. In my mind, you didn't stop your life to go riding as a like you'd stop your life to go sailing or skiing or something like that. And that's how most people consume motorcycling in America. But in my mind, it was an entire way to live so that if you had to go to cross country, you had to have, I, I didn't, we don't, The all that stuff you mentioned in a catalog, very little of that was bolt onto your bike. When you get a typical aftermarket company's catalog, it has racks and accessories that fit that particular model and year of bike. I wanted stuff you would have in your house or have in your pocket or carry on your pack that would make motorcycling easier. So we sold three different regular umbrellas because when you're traveling on a motorcycle, you're standing around outdoors. And an umbrella, whether it's a super hot sunny day or rain, is a very handy thing to have. But you don't know that unless you sort of give up on your car and start riding every day. And so we filled the catalog with tents that I thought were most appropriate for motorcycle travelers and sleeping bags the same and umbrellas and a couple of little cook kits. We're not a real outfitter for you know expedition. There's other kinds of outfitters that have a lot deeper selection of flashlights and knives and little stoves and stuff. But I wanted enough of it, cur- like you said, curated for people who motorcycle. One example is uh, in the little tent area. If you are a motorcycle traveler, there is a chance that you'll find yourself wanting to put up a tent in an area where there's all pavement. I've done I've had to do this. It's not very much fun. It's not like sure. camping on dirt. But if you have to put up your tent in a parking lot somewhere uh, and there is no grass to do anything, uh, you ha- can't have a tent that needs to be staked into the ground. You have to have a dome style tent that just sort of sits there. And so we have one person and two person and three person and four person versions of the dome style tent because that's really what you need if you're not sure what where you're going to need to put that tent. So it's curated and if you go to a real outdoor place like REI or even Amazon, um, you'll see a million tents, sure. not just three or four that are well suited for uh, motorcycle traveling. Right. So that's, So the catalog was an attempt to inferentially present to our audience how to be a motorcyclist in a way that I think is good.
0: Well, one of the things I've always liked about the catalog, I don't know who first told me about the catalog, but i I called up and ordered one and had one sent to me is that uh, it's not just a catalog of of apparel and uh, useful items, but it's you've got all these like pearls of wisdom. you know, you've got some uh, philosophical, maybe little essays up front. You've got uh, all these interesting little descriptions of products. I know you've got Mr. Subjective. Um, and for me, one of my favorite things has been the selection of books that you have in there is that some of my favorite motorcycling books I found and ordered through the Air Stitch catalog. Uh, the, Melissa Holbrook Pearson's The Perfect Vehicle was a perfect example. And um, yeah. uh, there are various other books that I may not have found. And again, this was this was the late 90s when I first got an Air Stitch catalog and the internet was in in, in its infancy. so. Um, it was it, something like the, that catalog was the best way to find out some of that, uh, where, to, how to find
1: well, we, cer- we certainly had a ton of fun making it. I I really loved being the zealot, or I don't know how to pronounce zealot or evangelist or whatever you want to call it for this stuff. And we had fights about uh, which uh, people I work with would say, well, this book doesn't sell. And I said, I don't care. It's a really good book about <laughs> motorcycling. We're, we're keeping it. Sure. And so it's that it, I guess, as Mel Brooks would say, it's good to be the king sometimes. Yeah. But uh, uh, it it, it Aristich was not established to make me rich. It, it, it was established to give me something to do with my life that I believed in, and hopefully it would make enough money to allow it to continue. Um, so that's why uh, why why the catalog is the way it is it's become sort of obsolete nowadays. They're very, exp- as you know, as a print yeah. magazine creator, uh, it's extremely expensive. And th- the cost of print, even before the internet, forced the, the it, it created the profession of journalism because you couldn't, ju- you couldn't afford, even when the internet didn't exist, you couldn't afford to put just any old opinion in there. You had to have educated people. You had to have Kevin Cameron and P- right. Peter Egan and- all these people that were predecessors to you had to know how to write and had to know how to think. And when you went to a newsstand and bought a print magazine or you looked at a narrow stitch catalog, um, it was so expensive you couldn't just lollygag around and put anything you wanted in there like you can on the internet. Sure. Yeah. So it it, it helped. Well, I mean, lot. you're
0: right. I mean, it, it not only entertains but it informs. I mean, if if someone is right. considering certain motorcycles, certain products, and and so even though, you know, there was, I, I mean, that's what the air Stitch catalog had kind of an editorial component to it. You know, like I said, you could learn that's, that's about exactly. motorcycling, not just what to buy. And I found exactly. that valuable. It had this kind of insider club sort of feel to it, where we were all sort of part of this, this little group. And um, yeah, I mean, all kinds of, you know, unexpectedly useful products. One of the things that uh, you sent me to test years ago, and it is still something that I use all the time is the is the LP bag, the lightweight portable bag, which is just, That's it's it. a ripstop nylon, it has straps where you can wear it as a backpack, I think you could probably stuff a helmet in there, but I take yep. that with me everywhere, because it, it basically folds up into just about the size of my fist, I take it on every trip, it ends up being my laundry bag, it ends up being everything, yep. and I just interviewed Dr. Greg Frazier uh, for the podcast, he's always, you know, in photos, he's always wearing an air stitch suit, and he was telling me about the time he went across Russia and all he had was this map from the China Southern um, <laughs> air, air yeah. magazine of the map of Russia and a compass that he got from you from this from air stitch compass. And that's how he made his way across Russia. So,
1: yeah. Well, let me put in a plug for you and the podcast. You gave him and he gave you a wonderful interview. The two of you produced something really fun to listen to. So if you're listening to me right now, and you want a really good interview. A few uh, times previous to this interview is the Greg Fraser, uh, Greg uh, Drevenstedt interview, and it's worth listening to. You guys had a good. I enjoyed his stories and your questions very much.
0: Thanks. Yeah, he's he's a fun guy. I've only met him once in person, uh, many years ago in Thailand, of all places. Uh, but he gets around a lot of rallies, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll get to catch up with him soon. And, so. and he,
1: you know, he's got his own purist kind of attitude. I don't know uh, exactly what keeps him going in life anymore really sometimes than i know myself but but he he's a -a one-of-a-kind guy he's a neat guy
0: yeah well to be around the world to have traveled around the world as many times as he has by motorcycle he's a self-professed luddite like he says he doesn't have a smartphone he doesn't do use a gps you know and so he's somebody who's figured out how to travel the world and explore by his own wits which yep in the days of sat phones and everything else it's uh it's um, it, it seems anachronistic but at the same time it's something that is uh, um, it's a it's a purist approach to travel and adventure.
1: yeah he represents sort of a bygone era in uh, motorcycle traveling when you're sort of on your own you what what created today's adventure motorcycling market quote unquote is only three or four things. One was the motorcycles got very reliable, so you can depend on the bike to get you home, no matter where, pretty much no matter where you are, and the smartphone and the GPS technology. So you can't get lost. You always can call somebody, and the bike isn't going to break down. But when Greg started doing it, those things weren't there, none of those. So it became very... manageable for the average person to decide to ride to Alaska in my lifetime and in years. Right,
0: right. Yes, he's, he's definitely one of those trailblazers that, you know, as when people do something first or do it multiple times, that's when other people realize that it, it it's it's possible. So I wonder, you know, uh, speaking of, you know, Dr. Frazier, he's, like I said, I, I, nearly every photo I've ever seen him in, if he's wearing riding gear, he's got an air stitch suit on. Um, years ago, I had the uh, opportunity to meet uh, John Ryan, uh, after Melissa uh, Holbrook Pilson wrote her book, uh, The Man Who Would Stop at Nothing. And um, he was known for his air stitch suit. He often had the NASA patch on it. He was, yes, he it was often, you couldn't even really tell what its true color was because it had so much <laughs> road grime on it. But um, I would think that that would be uh, gratifying to know that you, people that are some of the, the most dedicated long-distance motorcycle riders, you know, choose the air stitch suit.
1: I think it is very gratifying. You know, there's um, a lot of motorcycling is done to be the coolest person in the room or the fastest, and that's legitimate. Uh, but when we started out, I wanted heritage gear to not be something that needed to be revised every two years. When they sell soap in a grocery store, detergent for your laundry, often the package will say "new and improved," Tide or Oxidol or whatever the brand is and basically it's the same old soap 99 percent of the time with the words new and improved on the box because that helps sales and so when uh, some of our direct competitors restyle their garment every 24 months or every 18 months and they run ads in all the magazines and promote the heck out of it this is the latest this is the greatest this is new and improved this is better technology In my view, the truth is that there have only been about three major technologies for protective armored riders' clothing. They had the British wax cotton, which came from uh, offshore uh, fishermen, commercial fishermen in the UK and in Wales, Scotland, uh, 100 years ago. And then they had denim, which came out of America's Old West, basically, in jackets and pants. And then they had leather. And there's a basic history to that. And then they had the modern textiles like the, like what we started pioneering. And once you design and invent like a Levi 501 buttonfly blue jean, 18 whatever it was, pretty hard to make that new and improved. But that doesn't stop people who want to make money from trying. So they'll put decorative stitching on the back pocket or they'll put artificial in, uh, tears and into the fabric and uh 13 year old girls will eat it up and they'll buy all the torn jeans with decorative stitching and they'll feel really pretty and they are really pretty and it's all wonderful but it's not really a better blue jean than the old levi's 501 made in 18 whatever and the same is true with synthetic textile armored riders clothing you can put all the pockets you want on all the zippers you want all the vents all the reflective we try to use something that philosophers call Occam's razor, which is how simple can you make it? How light can you make it? What's the least you need to make it do its job? And so AeroStitch's gear isn't new and improved every 18 months. It's refined. We make detailed changes as things come out. I think we've had three different generations of of 3M reflective on there. 3M's improved their product. It's more durable. It's better in so many different little ways. So we switched to it or we changed the way we sew a pocket to make it a little easier. But basically the design is from 10 feet away. It looks the same as it did in 1984, sure. because that's, there was a, there was no competitor reference points when I was starting to do this. I had to draw on a piece of paper. I want it to be this way. I think I'm going to want to be able to carry a quart of milk in a big, in the front pocket. So we have this big, long front pocket. Or I think I want to be able to put the toll road change in the sleeve pocket so that, if I'm going on a toll road, I pull up to the toll booth. Do I want to put it on the left sleeve or the right sleeve? Well, if it's on the left sleeve, then riders will sit there in the toll thing with their with in first gear with their clutch pulled in, and they'll fumble it and they'll fall over. So it better be on the right sleeve to right. force riders to go into neutral at the toll booth. So when they fish out the dollar for the toll booth, they're not sitting there holding the clutch in. So all of the, there was a there was a million little decisions on how I wanted the thing to function as a tool as a piece of equipment and that's what we still make today and the result is that like you said earlier the people who ride a lot of miles know the difference they don't care really what it looks like we have a lot of jokes that it is it's it's an antiphrodisiac, which is a word that the the word for making somebody sexually attractive is using an aphrodisiac Right. But there's actually a word in the dictionary, an antiphrodisiac or something like that. <laughs> so it's it's that's what we spray on the suits. We joke uh, because it's it's just it's just good equipment. And the size grading system we have sixty sizes. So I, I, we touched on this earlier. You're, if you use a tool every day, it needs to fit. You, right. Nobody would run a marathon in flip flops. I don't think. You want a a certain width shoe, a certain length shoe, and if you're running, it better fit comfortably if you're gonna do 26 miles. And if you're using a riding suit every day or a riding jacket every day like Greg does, uh, you want it to be as light as possible, as cool as possible, as simple as possible, and you want the pockets in places where you can really use them. And you look around at the plethora of wonderful um, rider's gear of all different descriptions, and a lot of it is not as light, as simple, as functional, as much of a tool as what we make. Even though, in the marketing area, they will claim it. It's always we've invented a better jacket, but really not. Well, soap is soap.
0: And you know, in that regard, I mean, you know, this is something that some people may know is that you talk about off-the-rack sizes for air suit suits, but you know, you do have the you know because you make them yourself there in in, in Minnesota. Is somebody that is unusually tall or got other, you know, body size, you know, that may not fit a, 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 a one of your standard sizes, you can have them custom tailored. You can have and you also offer different um variations on the suit that, that people can pay to have yep. them customized. Yep. You can have them so, repaired as well. I mean, that is something that you also do, whether not just for crashes, but if if there's there's a problem with a zipper or a pocket or something like that, is you can have it sent back to airstitch and have it repaired
1: right it makes a real difference if you're riding 200 or 250 days a year and and which not many people do we both know that the average motorcycle in america has ridden like 1800 miles a year you know that's one trip and a few weekends but if you're commuting it, it's a little more right. the average car i think is driven 12 12 000 miles a year right. right so that's why we do things the way we do them
0: Well, you had mentioned earlier um, that um, on June 21st, so that's coming up pretty soon from when we're recording this, is going to be the 30th annual Ride to Work Day, and that's the International Motorcycle and Scooter Ride to Work Day, and um, tell us a little bit about that. I know this is something that you're an advocate for, is the idea that motorcycling is a public good, and that this is uh, one day that- uh, It's a
1: social good. You know, you see uh, the bumper, most many people have seen the bumper sticker on a bicycle or something that says one less car. Uh, But but we spent 100 years building a wonderful industrial uh, infrastructure. The Industrial Revolution is over. It happened. And now we live miles from where we work and the roads are congested and all kinds of people yelling at us about the environment or climate or whatever. Motorcycles are good for us they reduce road congestion, they create more parking spaces. And if I was running governments, I would do everything I could to encourage more people to adopt daily regular motorcycling because it makes you a better husband or wife or student or teacher or taxpayer, whatever you are. Uh, And the statistics about the risk of motorcycling, the chance of getting injured and killed are artificially or not artificially, that's the wrong word. They're biased because when you have a population of consumers using motorcycles 1200 miles a year, they're riding recreationally on unfamiliar roads. They're playing with the motorcycle to see if they can make this corner or do a wheelie or how fast they can turn or stop. Sometimes there's alcohol in the mix. So you've got people riding unfamiliar roads that don't ride very well, sometimes drinking, and you get a lot of accidents. But if you look at the California Highway Patrol officers who are riding 40 or 50 or 60,000 miles a year between the lanes on LA freeways, they never crash because they know what they're doing. And you, Greg, who are riding a motorcycle to work every day, are very unlikely to, not that you couldn't, not that I couldn't, but when you are fluent, when when you do something, fluency comes with frequency and you become a much safer than the statistical norm rider. Just by default, if you start riding almost every day, you don't have to ride if it's super adverse weather or whatever, but if you're riding almost every day, you kind of learn how to read traffic evolving situations and you're not playing with the motorcycle. If you're on a commute, chances are you're on the same roads almost every day and you see almost the same other drivers around you. And there are commutes that admittedly are full of people who aren't good to be around on a motorcycle. There's been plenty of times when I've been in a busy road. Uh, a year or two ago, I rode, I've rode. i ridden out to New York City a few, maybe five times in my lifetime. And I, I'm not really fond of riding around certain parts of New York City because it's a very challenging traffic environment. But John Ryan did uh, every day for most of his life. And uh, even though he was, uh, killed on a motorcycle accident it was probably i think maybe a road rage thing that he didn't i suspect it was something not quite the the, the accident report will never probably be released but yeah, you some, did health, good tra- and some except, health
0: challenges too there's a there's a number of factors that could have been involved right
1: you, my main point is you get much safer statistically if you're riding frequently sure. it's the same with airplanes you know when scully put the airplane down in the hudson river Uh, He knew what he was doing. He had a lot of flight time and that's the same with the people who ride a lot. you get safe. It gets, it becomes safer.
0: Well, you know, it's because I live in California and I've commuted uh, on the freeway many, many times, day after day after day. And some people that live in states that do not allow lane sharing, lane filtering, lane splitting, whatever you want to call it, often think that, wow, that's crazy. Why would you do that? But actually, uh, studies have shown that it's actually safer because you're not actually sandwiched right. between the front and rear bumpers of cars in your lane you're between the cars you can see much farther down the road you're less likely to get hit from behind which is how most traffic accidents and congested areas yep. happen and when when there's no such thing as a small fender bender when a car and a motorcycle are involved so you know yeah. in, I've been doing it for years and actually it's you develop almost kind of like a sixth sense or a spider sense where you can see slight variations in car's movement you can see a, a driver look in their side view mirror or something and so you do develop a, an ability to anticipate and and see things coming before they happen and you're you're not as boxed in and vulnerable as you are in cars yep and uh, you know so it's one of those things that I know it's it's starting to become Several more states have started to allow it, uh, and it's, I think, going to be very good for traffic safety and congestion.
1: Yep, and what the public sees when they're waiting in their idling cars in those 8 lane freeways out there is they'll see some 17, 18-year-old kids zoom by at 40 miles an hour over the whatever they're, you know, too fast between the lanes and they'll say, oh, motorcycles, blah, 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 terrible. That's not how you lane split, I'm sure you know how to do it with a, and so do all the California Highway patrol officers so that it's relatively safe much safer than the public thinks because the public will see the kid on the ninja going by or whatever crotch rocket going by with no pipe at a high rate of speed and that isn't safe but sure. that's, that's in California when they, when they wrote lane splitting into law recently a couple years three years ago I think maybe they they, they said the differential, of speed between the stop t- traffic and your speed is limited to so many miles an hour which is safe right. so it's well you know that's to work day the, yeah yeah to work day is really all about letting the public know that ordinary a to b motorcycling is safe is a social benefit to everyone uh it makes the world better it makes the people who do it better um right it's right to work day is about telling that story which isn't told a lot in motorcycling because frankly motorcycling is so exciting and so fun if you don't do it regularly every time you get on it you're thrilled to you know but you once you become normalized to riding it's still just as much fun but it becomes much safer
0: right and you know I, that's obviously one of the the challenges that we deal with as as motorcyclists in the united states is culturally as you said you know when you were growing up and you were riding motorcycles you had friends you had family members that kept asking you why are you still doing that why are you still riding a motorcycle you know when are you going to grow up um having had the opportunity to ride many times in europe there's just a different mindset uh, one is that uh, yep. part of it is the the cost of fuel and the cost of vehicles and so forth The congestion in cities and the the design of some of the roads is that motorcycling is much more common as a regular form as a primary form of transportation and there's less cultural aversion to motorcyclists in Europe. And so it's um, You know, that is one of the challenges also lane splitting lane sharing is common. You can park on most sidewalks in cities. There are just many fewer restrictions to where it is. It's not only encouraged, but it becomes uh, for some people it's the it's really the only cost-effective way for them to have transportation that isn't public transportation.
1: Yes. Yeah, and you see people of all ages going on motorcycles, hauling their groceries or hauling their children to school or whatever. I have a coworker at AeroStitch who took his kid to school on the back of a Kawasaki 650 for years when the kid was a little kid. Coolest kid in grade school. (laughs) Absolutely. And, uh, uh, you know, things happen. There's a, a, a philosophic point of what are laws really? And laws have a tendency to just sort of sanctify and bless what our natural behaviors are. So all over the world, um, in Asia and in Europe and in South America, the natural thing to do if you're on a motorcycle in a traffic situation is to use the motorcycle's nimbleness and narrowness to snake through the traffic. And here in America, You're considered a horrible hooligan if you're doing that, mainly because America is the only country in the world that went right to automobiles. We had motorcycles and cars in 1912, 1913, 1910, 1908, but Henry Ford came along, invented mass production, and started putting Model Ts in every farmer's barn. And the rest is history as the saying goes. We went right to cars, So we're out there as a as a minority in traffic. And when you're a minority, you're scapegoated. You know how I mean that's, but we have the freedom to ride and it is a good thing for everybody. We are just not tolerated like they're tolerated in Asia and in Europe uh, and in South America as normal transportation. It's this is a wonderful transportation option. And if you happen to own an AeroStitch coverall or some other good quality riding gear, you don't even have to wait for a nice day.
0: Right, right. Well, <laughs> I know that, you know, once I got my AeroStitch and I would be able to zip in and out of it. Um, and I know in the past that I, uh, you've hosted the the Very Boring Rally there in Minnesota. And I don't know if it's just there or maybe some BMW rallies. You have you will sometimes have contests to, to see who can get in and out of an AeroStitch suit the fastest. Uh,
1: but, right, we do the Very Boring Rally every five years. and. The longer we do them, uh, the more boring they get, but they are fun, and, um, and the, the idea is to just use your motorcycle like you'd use your car, unless you need to haul a big, bulky object, or unless the weather is too atrocious for you to tolerate. Here in Duluth, Minnesota, I know a little about atrocious weather, so there is limits. I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, Andy,
0: you've been very generous with your time. Is there anything you want to mention again? I, I know we've talked about uh, AirStitch and the Road Crafter, and we've got w- Ride to Work Day coming up. So hopefully, I know a lot of people are working from home now. Maybe they'll just use that as an excuse to go out for a ride on a Monday on uh, June 21st. We hope.
1: We sure hope they will. It's hard to measure the impact of an event like Ride to Work Day. It is worldwide. It, we have tried to figure out, how many more people ride to ride on Ride to Work Day by counting motorcyclists passing under an overpass on a regular Monday and then on the Ride to Work Day Monday? And it is more. And so it might be the world's largest motorcycle event by numbers of participants. If you are listening to this and you want to go riding or ride to work on Ride to Work Day, do it. And if anyone asks you about your bike, tell them how great it is. And uh, that's the whole purpose of the event it's and and like your other guest uh recently greg frazier i want to tell you how much i enjoyed this opportunity i've been i met you a couple of times and i love what you're doing with rider magazine i've been reading it since um well 40 years or whatever it's been it's a wonderful magazine and i know you're carrying on juggling a lot of hats, wearing a lot of hats these days, but uh, it is a, you put out a great magazine and I, I enjoy it very much and I'm very grateful for this opportunity to talk to your audience.
0: Thank, thank you, Andy, it's, uh, it's been an honor to uh, work for Ryder for a number of years and to take over for Mark Tuttle who really steered the ship, you know, for 32 years as editor in chief. And so he left really big shoes to fill, but um, he was a great mentor for the time that uh, I worked with him and uh, so, I appreciate all the support that you've provided to us, not just you know, uh, you know, ads in the magazine, but products we've been able to test. I've been able to wear road crafter suits. So yeah, it's it's a pleasure. And thanks for all that you do for motorcycling, really. With the Ride to Work Day, with uh, Air Stitch and the roadcrafter suit, we'll have links in the show notes. So thanks, it's been a pleasure chatting with you.
1: You're welcome and thank you.
0: Great. So uh, for Rider Magazine Insider Podcasts, I'm Greg Drevenstead. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. If you've enjoyed listening to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating, and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com, where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews, and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Rider Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening.